0: So today, we're going to take a detour from Hebrews, we're studying through Hebrews, so what what we do is, I'm preaching through Hebrews on Sunday, then on Wednesday night, we go verse by verse, and we study, and we discuss um, um, the book. But today is Palm Sunday, and I wanted to give you a Palm Sunday message, and I wanted to look at um, the Gospels In particular, the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to do this not with one text, but we're going to actually do it from a text out of three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually, all four of the Gospels give us an account of the triumphal entry. But when we put together the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in particular, it really gives us a full picture of what happened on that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. It says, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now I want us to go to Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 44. So Jesus And his disciples are coming into Jerusalem. Now, what's already happened is Jesus already sent his disciples ahead. They got the colt, the young colt. Remember, he says, Go and tell them, if anyone asks, Why are you getting this young colt? tell them the Lord has need of it. And they go in, they find the colt tied up, just as Jesus said. And they, they get it and someone says, hey, what are you doing taking that colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they said, oh, okay. And they bring the colt back to Jesus and Jesus gets on the colt. They put their cloaks or clothes on the colt. He gets on top of the colt. He's riding on the colt. And as he's riding, the crowd is behind him, before him, and all around him. And they're putting their clothes and their branches down. And this is, this is the scene we just read. Now we come to Matthew chapter 19, verse 37 through 44. It's the same Seen. Now listen to what Luke's, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 44. Listen to how Luke gives the account here. It says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now this is just as Jesus is coming up before he makes his descent down the Mount of Olives and crosses over into the city of Jerusalem. He crests the hill and he comes and he sees Jerusalem below him. And the Bible says he weeps and he cries because he knows what's coming upon this city. And it wasn't that Jesus was concerned about the buildings. He wasn't, he wasn't sad because the buildings were going to get torn down. The city represented what? The city here in this account of the gospel represents the same thing the city we see in the book of Revelation represents. Jesus is not going to marry a city. He's not marrying buildings. He's marrying a people. And in the book of Revelation, John sees the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The city represents the people. When Jesus stands over Jerusalem and he is weeping because they do not know their time of visitation, it's because he knows the judgment that is coming because they have rejected him. Now let's go to Mark chapter 11 verses 15 through 18. So they come, Jesus looks over Jerusalem. He wept over the city. He says, if you would have only known the time of your visitation, but you did not know it, and because you did not know it, judgment is coming upon you. Mark 11, 15 through 18, verse 15, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus comes into the city, he goes right into the temple, and he goes, as he goes into the temple, he goes into the court of the Gentiles, and he takes whips and cords, and he drives out the money changer. He overturns their tables, he drives them out, And this was not a small area, this was a large area. This was acres of area. And Jesus is driving them out, and we're going to talk about why he's doing that and what is significant about this. And he cleans out the temple, and then we go back to Matthew chapter 24, I mean 21, Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 through 16. He cleans out the temple, and that's in Matthew's account. And the scripture, the Old Testament scripture that's quoted there is the scripture that reminds us that his house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, which is significant because the word nation in the Hebrew is the word Gentile. So when you hear the word Gentile or read the word Gentile in the Old Testament scriptures, you can substitute that in your mind with the word nation. The Gentiles were the nations. My house of prayer for all nations is a house of prayer for the Gentiles. God even made a place in his temple for The Gentiles. What does this tell us? It tells us that the salvation that Jesus would bring is for the whole world. It's not just for Jews alone. It is for the world. It's for the nations, all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So after Jesus drove out those buyers and sellers and those money changers, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 14, it says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, just like up here, the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, Have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. Illuminate this word to us. Plant it deep in our hearts, God. Lord, make our hearts good soil that your good word planted in our hearts would bring forth a harvest of righteousness, a harvest that would bring glory and honor and a witness to your name through our lives. We ask this, Lord, that you would be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have this account. So this is the the reason you should read your Bibles carefully. So the four gospel accounts are not meant to be four Exact accounts. They're not giving us contradictory information. They're giving us complete information. And we will get the complete picture of what the Scripture is revealing to us as we carefully read and study the complete, the whole counsel of God's Word. That's why it's important that we read not just the New Testament. Some people say, well, you know, we're in the New Testament times. The Old Testament's passed away. It's not, it's not any good. We don't need that anymore. No, you absolutely need it because the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is the Word of God, and you cannot understand the Word of God, and you will never fully know who God is if you don't know God in the entirety of who He has presented Himself to be in the whole counsel of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. The reason we have a New Testament is because we have an Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. Peter and Paul and James and John, they they weren't reading from what we call the New Testament. It didn't exist. We have it because they took the Old Testament Scriptures and they used them and expounded and wrote and explained how the Old Testament Scriptures reveal Christ to us. Thus, we have our New Testament inspired by God, just like the Old Testament Scriptures are inspired by God. So as we've looked at this account of the triumphal entry, there's really four themes that I see in this account that I want to I bring to your attention through this narrative today. And it's important that these themes that we're going to talk about are working in our lives, that we see them that we embrace them, that we don't run from them, or we don't ignore them. We see God's salvation. We see God's visitation. We see the holiness of God. And we see the restoration that God brings. And if we neglect these important truths, we will experience the consequences of ignoring them. And the consequences of ignoring them, if we are fortunate, will come with the merciful correction of God. You do realize God corrects us, right? And that's a good thing. If God does not correct us, that means we're not His children and He does not acknowledge us. But the fact that God brings correction to his children signifies and it teaches us that God loves us. This is what the book of Hebrews says. We haven't gotten there yet in our Wednesday night lesson, but we're getting there. We're fixing to get there where we we see where God brings correction to those whom he loves. And when we ignore, when we neglect the things that God has revealed to us, that are for our good and for His glory and for His good and for His glory. When we neglect those, when we ignore those, if we're God's children, just like every good parent would do, we bring correction to our children because we want our children to walk in the things that are for their good and for God's glory, right? And if we're not God's children, if we're just rejecting Him and and ignoring Him, the consequence of this is God's wrath. This is what happened to Jerusalem. This is what happened in 70 AD. So if we belong to Jesus, if we're God's children, we can be assured that he, dis- he disciplines, he corrects because he loves. And when his correction seems harsh, it is his love and his mercy instead of his wrath and his justice. So just like the correction of an earthly father can seem harsh to a child, sometimes God's correction may seem harsh to us. But we need to remember that God corrects us because he loves us. And it's actually the grace and the mercy of God. Because the alternative to God's loving correction is his just wrath. And here's the good news for those who trust in Jesus. We have not been appointed to God's wrath. So salvation, visitation, holiness, and restoration. Salvation, the triumphal entry could seem counterintuitive given that Jesus was headed to his crucifixion. What's triumphal about a savior riding into a city and he's just going to be crucified days later? Well, that's exactly what the crowds thought who were screaming and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. They were saying, save us, we pray. Save us, we beseech thee. And they were crying out to Jesus to save them because they thought Jesus was going to save them. And he actually did save many of them. But even those whom Jesus saved on that day were not saved the way they thought Jesus was going to save them. Because they thought Jesus was going to save them by the sword Not by a cross. And you can imagine as Jesus hung on that cross, disfigured, not even looking like a human uh, form. He was so beaten, he was so distorted from the beating that he took. He's hanging on that cross, bleeding out, literally. Literally. And all of these people who just days before thought that this man was going to ride in and take up a sword and overthrow the Roman Empire and restore the kingdom to Israel and sit on the throne and rule as the son of David. They were ready for that. They were looking for that. But instead, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he begins to disrupt everything around him. If Jesus would have taken up a sword and done signs and miracles and done exactly what Israel wanted them to do, he would have won over the scribes and the Pharisees. But he would have also been compromising and submitting to the way of the world instead of the way of his Father. He would have been doing the will of man instead of doing the will of his Father. Instead of Jesus taking up a sword, Jesus was put up on a cross. And it was through the cross that Jesus brought about our salvation. And the people did not look for their salvation to come through a crucified Savior bleeding out on a cross. That would be taken off, wrapped in a cloth, and put in a tomb because he was dead. You do realize Jesus actually died on the cross. He died a physical death. But the good news is he didn't remain physically dead. Three days later, he rose physically from the dead. He rose bodily from the dead. We're going to talk about that next week when we get to Easter. But the point is, in order for Jesus to accomplish our salvation, he had to go to the cross. And he had to be lifted up on that cross, and he had to die for us. So the cry, save us, Lord, we pray, he did. He did indeed save us. But he saved us in a way that those men and those women and those people were not looking for. And God does the very same thing for us today. He saves us in ways that we often are not looking for. He provides for us in ways that we very often are not looking for. He works in ways that are counterintuitive to the ways that we would work and the things that we would do. And if we read our Bibles, if we just look at the account of the triumphal entry, we will see and we will know and we will have hope that when life doesn't seem like it's going the way we want it to, And the things that are happening, the circumstances that are now out of my control and they're not the circumstances I would choose and I would pick, it would not be the way that I would work. We need to go back to the scripture. We need to look at how God has worked since the beginning of creation. And know that God is in control. That God is always at work. That God has never lost control. He's never taken his hand off the wheel. He's never fallen asleep. He's never turned away from us. He's never walked away from us. He is right there bringing about his plan, his purpose for his glory. And we can look at the scripture and we can say, you know what? This reminds me. God doesn't always work the way that that I would work or the way that seems logical to man because God is not just a man. Jesus was a man, but he was also God. The Father is a spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And we want to create God in our image, and that's our problem. We're created in God's image. We are to never create God in our image. And when we begin to doubt God and question the way God works and the things that happen, that's really what we're doing because what we're saying is, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't have made that decision. I wouldn't have done it that way. I I wouldn't let that happen. If I was God, I sure wouldn't let that happen. When we do those things, what we're doing is creating God in our image and what we need to do is step away and say, God, forgive me because you are absolutely, completely other than What I am, you are absolutely, completely other than what your creation is. You stand outside of your creation. You stand above your creation. Therefore, I cannot create you in the image of anything that is created. And that would be ourselves as well. So our salvation, Jesus brought our salvation, but he didn't bring it in the way that Israel was looking for, yet he absolutely, completely achieved that salvation for us through his death on the cross. And that is what was triumphal about his entry into Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, we see where Jesus, as he drew near the city, he saw the city and wept over it. And he said these words, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. In case you don't know your history, that actually happened in 70 A.D., you can go to the historian, the, the Jewish historian, Josephus. You can read in graphic detail about the siege of Jerusalem and what happened in those years leading up to and in the days surrounding the actual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And what Jesus prophesied, recorded here in Luke, came to pass in vivid graphic detail and not one detail of what Jesus re- Said, recorded for us in Luke, or what is recorded for us in Matthew 24 was left unfulfilled. It was absolutely fulfilled by God. The word translated visitation is an interesting word. It is the same word we translate as bishop, it's only used four times in the New Testament. It's used in Luke 19.44, we just read that. Speaking of the time of visitation, it's lu- used in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, when Peter writes, "...having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, among the nations, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation." So this word means an official visit for inspection or supervision. Specifically, we're talking about a visit by God. It's also a word that speaks of the office of watching over and directing and caring for a church, as Paul indicates in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. When Paul writes, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. That word for bishop in 1 Timothy 3 is the same word for visitation in Matthew, in Luke chapter 19. It's also used as the office of supervising or having charge or direction over something. It's used in Acts chapter 1 verse 20. When it's talking about Judas, when it says, for it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Do you know what office Judas had in Jesus' ministry? He was the treasurer. (laughs) And yes, he was a crooked treasurer. He was stealing the money. And guess what? Jesus knew it. But it wasn't his thievery that got him condemned. It was his rejection of Christ that got him redeemed. Do you know that God will forgive your thievery? God will forgive your lying. God will forgive your adultery. God will forgive your murder even. But if you reject Christ, you reject the only thing, the only person, the only price that has been paid that can suffice to take away your sin of murder or thievery or adultery or any other thing. This was Israel's time. This was Jerusalem's time. It was the time of those people. It was the time of their visitation. And they missed it. Jesus said they didn't know it. And in the context of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the time of visitation Jesus refers to points us to the impending judgment coming upon that Jewish nation for the rejection of Christ as their Messiah because they did not know the time of their visitation. Judgment was determined for them. And judgment, the Bible says, begins in the house of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We saw that judgment come to the house of God, to the city of Jerusalem, to that temple in 70 A.D., But judgment was not just for that day. Judgment is also for this day. Jesus is our great bishop, our great shepherd, our great pastor. He's our great high priest. He is the one visiting, supervising, overseeing his flock. We are his people. We are his church. Jesus didn't just ascend to heaven and go away and say, wait for his uh, alarm to go off when it was time for him to come back to earth. He is active. God is active in the salvation of his people. And the salvation of his people is not just what happened 2,000 years ago. It is what is happening right now. Jesus is building his church right now. Part of that building is what's happening with you as you are equipped. You come to worship. You come and you give your worship to the Lord, you are equipped to do what? Through the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word. This is why if we're preaching and teaching things that aren't centered in the word, if we're not using the word as our foundation for our preaching and our teaching, then you are not being equipped to go out and do what Jesus commanded us to do, which is to make disciples. He will build his church, but he will build it through our work of making disciples. It's not your power, it's not your ability, it's his power, it's his ability, it's his authority, but he has sent us in his authority, in his power, as his messengers, to proclaim the powerful gospel that can break through the hardness of men's hearts. And he has given us the commandment to make disciples of the nations. That's how all of us came to be where we are today. And if we are not doing that, we are the house of God. The house of God is not this building. The house of God is not some past or future stone structure in the city of Jerusalem. That's done. The house of God, the temple of God is the risen Savior. It is Jesus Christ. He himself said that in John chapter 2. And the Bible goes on to say that you now are the house of God. You are lively stones being built up, a holy habitation of God in the Spirit. You are the house of God now that spiritual sacrifices are offered up to God through Jesus Christ. You are the house. Jesus is building the house. He's building His church. And if we're not obedient, God will... As a good shepherd, as a good father, he will bring the correction necessary. I am praying, I hope you are praying that God will bring correction to his church in this nation and throughout the world, but in particular in this nation. Because if God doesn't bring correction to his church in this nation, our nation has no hope. Because there is no hope in Washington, there is no hope in Austin the only hope a nation has, the only hope a people have is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not believe this is the inerrant word of God, and this contains the only truth that can set us free, then people, we are lost. And pastor's better start preaching the gospel again and pastors better start urging their congregations to believe the gospel again and to turn to and look to the gospel again because God didn't just judge 2,000 years ago. God has been judging throughout history and God is judging today and it is only the grace of God and the mercy of God that our nation is not completely undone right now. God has been graceful. So, Have ears to hear and eyes to see. Don't be indifferent. Don't be apathetic. Take God's word seriously. Obey him. And let's get busy about the business of the kingdom. And let's make disciples. And let's see God change a nation by changing the hearts of men and women and children who are that nation. And that's only going to happen through the church. Because we are the people. We are the body of Christ that he's put here to accomplish that. The time of visitation. How do you know what your time of visitation is? Do you know how to know? I'll tell you how to know. It's it's right now. You know how you know? Because you're here. If you had been in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that would have been your time of visitation because you were there. But you weren't there, so that was not our time of visitation. Guess what? 2019 is our time of visitation right now. Don't miss it. Don't be like Israel of old. Don't miss your time of visitation. Recognize it, know it, and live it. Holiness. Holiness is directly related to consecration, dedication, and sanctification. The temple, the house of God, was called a house of prayer for all nations. Specifically, the court of the Gentiles, or the court of the nations, was taken over by money changers and sellers of sacrificial animals. So when Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers, he's in the court of the Gentiles. This is where they set up shop. You know why they set up shop in the court of the Gentiles? Because the... the, the The chief priests and the scribes did not love their neighbors. You know who their neighbors were? The Gentiles were their neighbors. The Samaritans were their neighbors. But they didn't love them. They didn't care that God had consecrated and dedicated a particular place in the temple compound and the temple court for the Gentiles to come to so that they could pray and worship. And they said, well, the Gentiles don't matter. There's a bunch of heathens, a bunch of pagans, just set up shop right here. And they just, in practicality, they drove the Gentiles out of their rightful place in the temple. Jesus comes in, and what does Jesus do? And this is not the first time Jesus did this. He did it at the beginning of his earthly ministry. It's recorded for us in the beginning of John. But he did it here at the end of his earthly ministry just as he's getting ready to be crucified. He goes back into the temple and he drives them out again. And he says this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That unholy enterprise of selling animals for sacrifice and exchanging money. So you bring your currency in, the temple had its own currency. So if you brought Roman currency in, you had to exchange your Roman currency for temple currency. That's the money changers. Anybody ever travel overseas and go to a bank to exchange your American dollars for... Are you in the airport... Really, the the more accurate version would be if you go to the airport to exchange your money, don't go to the airport to exchange your money because they're going to charge you a high exchange rate. And this is what was happening in the temple. They could not offer their tithes and their offerings. They had to have temple money. So you bring your Roman money in, and what do they do? They exchange it for temple money, but they're going to charge you an exchange rate. This is what was going on. Oh, you traveled across the sea. You couldn't bring your goat. You couldn't bring your turtle dove. Well, don't worry. We've got them for sale right here at the temple. You just come and you can buy your goats and turtle doves and lambs and everything you need right here at the temple. But guess what? It's kind of like going to the, it's like going to the, uh, uh, it's the NBA playoffs. You know, it's like going to the NBA playoffs. If you want a hot dog or a hamburger or a beer or a Coke at the NBA playoffs, basketball game, playoff, guess what? You're going to pay dearly for it. You'd pay dearly to buy that turtle dove and that animal that you had to sacrifice in the temple. You had to, or you'd be in disobedience to God. And guess what? They knew you had to sacrifice it, so it was one of those gotcha moments. Gotcha. Jesus goes in and he cleans all that out. It looked really religious Looked really holy, but it was actually very unholy. And Jesus overturned that unholy enterprise and he turned the space consecrated and dedicated to prayer and worship for the Gentiles back to its consecrated and dedicated purpose. Holiness implies our consecration, our dedication, our sanctification. In the Old Testament, the word holiness is often, de- often uh, translated dedicated or consecrated. And what it literally means is to be set apart for a specific purpose. When we come to the New Testament, the word holiness has a different connotation. The word holiness in the New Testament has more to do with what's happening in our heart and in our mind internally. But in the Old Testament, the word holiness literally pictured being literally physically set apart for a specific purpose. It applies both ways because our salvation is not just what happens in our hearts and in our minds. Our salvation in our heart and in our mind must translate into how we live our lives. So is your life set apart for the holy purposes of God or are you just giving God lip service For your salvation. See, that's what was happening with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and many of the people of Jesus' day. But guess what? It's still happening in our day. Consecration is the act of being separated, set apart, and dedicated for holy or sacred use. In Jesus Christ, you have been already set apart and consecrated for a sacred use sanctification which is the word used in the New Testament which speaks more to this internal our heart, our mind which must translate to the external sanctification is the ongoing process of our separation from the world because we can't just separate from the world on Monday and say we're good for the rest of the week that's why Paul said I die daily Paul had to separate himself from the world every day because the world is pressing in on us every day. Sanctification is the ongoing process of our separation from the world as we are being conformed, being. It's a continuous, present tense action. It's not what we were. It's not what we will be. It is what we are being. It's what's happening. Be being transformed. Be transformed. Being conformed to the image of the Son of God. Our sanctification is what Paul is referring to in Philippians twelve, uh, ver- Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 when he writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. You're not saving yourself, but you're working out your salvation. What does that mean? That means that the salvation that took place on the inside of you, the very moment you were born again, God did that. You didn't do that. You can't make yourself be born again any more than you could have made yourself be born the first time. You had no responsibility in your birth the first time. God is the one who brings about your new birth of the Spirit. And that happens in a moment, in an instant You are transformed internally, but guess what? That internal transformation that came by the grace of God has to be worked out. Because if you are truly saved, if you truly have the Spirit of God living on the inside of you, then that life of the Spirit must become manifest on the outside of you. And it will, just like a seed planted in the ground, a good seed planted in good soil, guess what? It's going to spring forth and you're going to see the manifestation of that life. That's what our sanctification is. It's the ongoing process of the life of Christ manifesting through our lives. Holiness today is seen in small things. Holiness might be children. Holiness might be, hey, some of you guys, listen. Holiness might be you picking up your toys and putting them away before mom or dad has to tell you to do that. Holiness might be putting your trash in a can instead of throwing it on the ground or leaving it on the floor. Say, so what does that have to do with holiness? Paul said, "All that you do, do it as unto the Lord." He said everything that you do, all that you do. That's everything from putting up your toys to washing your clothes, to mowing your grass, to it's everything. It's how we love our neighbor. The Jews didn't love their neighbors enough to leave a space in the temple, so they just filled it with unholy, crooked enterprises where everyone was getting part of the kickback. Jesus said, that's wrong. That's not love. It looks like you're worshiping me, but you're not, because you don't love your neighbor. You didn't even leave a space for your neighbor here. Holiness is loving your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? That's an important question that we need to ask ourselves. We need to be people who pay attention to the small things as well as to the great things. The Bible says pride goes before fall, and there are countless small steps a person takes before they fall. So when we think about holiness, we need to realize that holiness shows up in the small things long, long before it shows up and the great things, Jesus drove out the money changers and then it says those who were blind and lame were brought to him, came to him. Now think about a blind person. How did a blind and a lame person come? They didn't just get up and walk in. Somebody brought them. Loving your neighbor is bringing your blind or your lame friend or loved one to the one that can bring healing to them. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And look at this. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, wonderful, the Spirit inspired an adjective there of what was transpiring in the temple. It was wonderful. But notice what the scribes and the chief priests, what they saw. They saw wonderful things. They heard the children crying out. Did any of you become indignant and angry when you heard the children crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest? If, if that made you mad, I want you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you right now. <laughs> Anybody? It didn't make you mad, did it? But guess what? In the day that Jesus was in the temple chasing out money changers, restoring things to their proper order, Healing the blind and the lame, and the children are all around yelling Hosanna in the highest. Guess who got angry? The scribes and the chief priests. They became indignant, the Bible says. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, don't you hear these? Tell them to be quiet. They saw the wonderful things, they heard the wonderful things, and they were indignant. What a contrast! Do you ever become indignant and angry over wonderful things? Well, the truth is, we, we do. We all do. We might not do it on purpose. We might not realize that we're doing it, but it happens to all of us. And this is where we need to remind ourselves, whoa, wait a minute. Why am I upset about that? Why am I having a problem with that? You know, I'm aggravated because it's so wet and muddy. Then I remind myself, Whoa, why am I upset? Because it's wet and muddy. That means we got rain. And we just spent years praying ourselves out of a drought and I'm already complaining about the rain? I mean, how quick do we forget, right? We can endure a little bit of mud, right? Because thank God he's restoring the water to the earth that was sucked out by years and years of drought. We can experience and see wonderful things and yet we can become indignant or frustrated Because we don't see the wonder, we see the agitation. We see what we lose instead of the wonder that God gives. This is what was happening with the chief priests. They could only see what they were losing through the popularity of Jesus with the people. And if Jesus continued to be popular with the people, it meant they would lose because they understood who Jesus was, and they understood what Jesus purposed to do. He did it when he drove them out of the temple. And he knew, they knew that their world, their system for their own benefit was being toppled by God. And they were willing to murder the Son of God in order to preserve their own selves. And you might think they're horrible people for doing that, and they are. But guess what? We are just as horrible today. Because we do the very same things in ways that are much less noticeable or much less obvious. Restoration. When Jesus healed those blind and those lame, he was bringing restoration. This is what our salvation has done. It has restored us to the place God has ordained for us in His grace. We're not restored in our goodness. We are restored in His grace. We have no goodness in ourself, but He has all grace to bestow on us in His, in His infinite goodness. The triumphal entry of Jesus signaled God's restoration. It was not brought about in the way many were looking to, The way God brought true and lasting restoration in Jesus was so out of the norm that many rejected Him. And when they saw the crucified Savior, many could not reconcile restoration with crucifixion and death. But that is exactly what God did. He brought restoration and reconciliation through crucifixion and death. Through the crucifixion and the death of Jesus on the cross came the resurrection from the dead and the ascension to the Father that has brought about our restoration and the restoration of all things according to the eternal plan and purpose of God. The triumphal entry reminds us of all these things that God has done and is still doing in our midst today and will continue to do for the generations throughout. The years, the decades, the centuries until Jesus comes again. Now Jesus, if he comes tomorrow, praise God. But listen, if Jesus doesn't come tomorrow or he doesn't come at the end of this decade, he doesn't come when you think he was supposed to come based on the latest book you read or the latest news headline you read, I would advise you get away from the books and the news headlines and go back to the Bible. And let's start reading our Bibles and let's start doing what Jesus said. And this is the promise of Jesus that he is working and he is bringing about the restoration and the reformation of all things and he will do that until he comes again. Well, what do we do? Well, we keep working, we keep obeying, we keep worshiping, we keep trusting until when? Until he comes again. Well, what if he doesn't come in my lifetime? Well, then you spend your lifetime doing that. But don't forget those that are coming after you because we need to prepare for these little ones. And if we're only building churches and ministries and things for ourselves because we think it's all fixing to be over, we are in rebellion against God because we better be looking at these little ones and saying we need to build something for them. We need to be willing to be stepping stones squashed down into the mud so that they can walk in our place and not have to experience the same things we did but they will experience a higher measure of faith and achievement in the kingdom of God. Amen? None of that would have been possible had Jesus not made his entry into Jerusalem and died on our behalf. So we're going to come to the table now. You don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church to come to the table you are trusting in Jesus, if you are a covenant member of God's body, you profess faith in Him. We let our children come to the table if they're children of covenant members because we believe coming to the table is teaching them what they need to know. We don't believe Jesus would exclude them from His feast. We believe Jesus would welcome them with open arms. And so we encourage our believing parents with children, to let your children come to the table and you teach them what the body and the blood is about. That it is by grace that they are able to come to this table. It is by grace that we've been accepted into the covenant of God. And this table is a picture of covenant. The body and the blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us is how God brought about His new covenant for His people. And this is a celebration of covenant today. So, Christian, come to the table and celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus. We'll all get the elements and then we'll take them together. Paul encouraged the Corinthians as he was warning them about their unworthy manner of coming to the table. And in his warning... And in his admonition to the Corinthians, he told them, discern the body of Christ. And it wasn't in a loaf of bread or a piece of bread at a banqueting table that he was telling them to discern, it was the people seated at that table. I want you to look around. I want you to discern the body of Christ. I want you to look around at your children. At young, at old, at tall, at short, those with long hair, those with no hair, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. This is the body of Christ. We discern the body when we discern that we are one another's neighbor. That we are brothers and sisters and we are our brother and our sister's keeper. That's what it means to discern the body of Christ. We can't love God if we do not love one another. Let's stand. And God has poured out His Spirit in our heart, in His love, to give us the capacity to love. Here is your charge Jesus came to save the world, but many are only interested in their own salvation which means they are not necessarily interested in the salvation of their neighbor. If our own salvation does not translate into a commitment to see the world saved, beginning with our neighbor and those immediately around us, then we need to evaluate the salvation we profess to have. God calls us to be a people who embrace His salvation for us and for others. God calls us to recognize the time of our visitation, You are here now, so this is the time of your visitation, so make sure you don't miss it. God calls us to holiness, to be like Him inwardly and outwardly. This is only possible through the work of Christ. We cannot be holy, though we can put on holy facades, and many do. But that is sin, that is not holiness. Our holiness must be genuine, which means it must come from Christ. And if it comes from Christ, it will be made manifest in our life. Our holiness will be known in the way we dedicate and consecrate our lives to God and His holy purpose. And that includes in all of our failing and in all of our falling down. Because we will fail and we will fall down, which does not mean we are not holy. It just means we're not trusting in our own holiness. Because when we fall and when we fail, we look to the only one that can truly make us holy, and that is the Lord Jesus. God calls us to restoration. Restoration has been achieved through Jesus Christ, but like holiness, it must translate into and flow out of our own life. Restoration is manifested in our life through our wholeness, and that's wholeness in every sense of the word. And in our holiness... And that's also in every sense of the word. In all the realms of our life. These are all wrapped up in one name. That is the name of Jesus. Our charge is to represent that name. To proclaim that name. To trust in that name. The name of Jesus. And to know that when we cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! He has indeed done it already in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.